Varmt välkommen! Jag heter Ingemar Fast och är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen här på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern, det stora Allkonsthuset vid Särgels torg i Stockholm. Åren går och plötsligt är det dags att jubilera. Internationell författarscen fyller 20 år. Allt startade den 22 januari 1998. Jag inbjöd ett knippe författare från olika delar av världen till denna festvecka i januari 2018. Publiken bjöds på fem fantastiska kvällar. Fem ömsom omtumlande, roliga och berörande möten. Lyssna nu till Ashley Erdogan, Turkiet, i samtal med Ian McEwan, England. Och det är Björn Wiman, till vardags kulturchef på Dagens Nyheter, som leder detta samtal. Welcome once again. And I'm proud to be a part of this final of this glorious week, the 20th anniversary of the Internationale Författarscen. And I'm proud to be here with you, Asli, and with you, Ian. We met briefly here, out mm-hmm. here, and the conversation has already started. Um, I just want to add a few personal words about the importance of today's date. It's the 27th of January, which uh, is also the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And my very brief point here is that I want us all to think about what the memory of the Holocaust would be without literature and without stories. And that this importance will keep on growing as fewer and fewer of those who actually were there to tell uh, are surviving. So that's just a brief point on the, on the importance of fiction and the importance of telling stories and the importance of literature. Uh, one of tonight's themes will be the freedom of speech. By using the freedom to speak, we will speak about this. And I have to begin with you, Asli. Ingmar introduced you very eloquently and very beautifully here. We met a couple of months ago in Gothenburg at the book fair at the DN stand and we had a very short conversation for 15 minutes. And you were there in Gothenburg at that time for the first time that you were allowed to leave Turkey after your travel ban had been lifted. So just tell me and Ian and the rest of the audience what has happened since and what's your situation today. Last time I was here on the stage, I was talking on Orpheus myth and uh, mortality and uh, literature versus mortality, mortality. Now I have to tell some real story <laughs> of my own. Uh, I was arrested on the uh, 16th of August, uh, released uh, four and a half months later. But still the charges are continuing and... Uh, They ask from uh, 17 and a half years to life, um, aggravated life sentence uh, for being an advisor to a totally legal newspaper. But uh, the case is going positively. Let's say every all the arrested people we were four, we are ten in the 
uh, in this uh, strange trial, but only four were arrested. All were all, all are released now. So this is a, a positive sign. In the past, uh, you would say if you were released, that was a half step towards acquittal. But in today's Turkey, I have seen cases of people being sentenced by the same judge who had said a few months ago there is no evidence. So maybe I'll be acquitted, maybe they'll give me a life sentence, depends on their mood, I must say. So the trial is still ongoing? Yeah, it's on uh, actually March 8th, the March 10th, sorry, okay. the next uh, court hearing where the verdict, the prosecutor will say his final word, and I hope I will not be there. I can't, I can't take it, <laughs> honestly. I, I mean, I can't listen. So, so have you, your your plan now is to to keep on staying away from Turkey, or you you want to go back? Or well, the word plan is a bit luxury in my case. I just left Turkey to get a prize with a little suitcase, same suite, and they told me you should not go back, uh -huh. and I really resisted. I. I I'm, I want to go back. My writing is there. I haven't. My windows are open. All this, and I had one week because I was coming to Gothenburg, and my body made the decision. I became very ill in Frankfurt. I had no time to go back to Turkey. I came to Gothenburg, and then somehow it's just inertia. I just stayed in Europe. I just couldn't make it back there. So it's. Uh, Purgatory. <laughs> Are you able to work? Are you able to think? Are you able to function as a as a writer, as an intellectual during all this? Well, I mean, my writing is in Turkey, and I used to write by hand, so it's really um, heavy that all these piles uh, are left there, and I had put some of my work in the, into computer that's mm. taken by the police and they didn't give it back to me. Mm. So I have to step over that trauma, that to start from scratch. And it's so difficult because I valued every little sentence I had written. <laughs> Now it's all zero. Suddenly I have to be reborn as a writer. And also my library with 4,000 books is back there. Plus my language is back there. And, uh, I mean, I am a very language-dependent writer. Mm. Everything is uh, just uh, words that uh, I I can hear only in Turkish, the words whispering. I'm not a great storyteller or this or that. I just play with the words, and that I can do only in, in Turkish. And now I'm losing my language, my rhythm, my my feelings almost. Part of your identity, of course, is, is, is in that, the ability oh, to write. I never looked at writing as a matter of identity, rather I, it was for me a matter of business of self. Uh, but of course, it's, I'm a writer of Turkish, and my boundaries are my language, and now they are... Uh, with holes, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> not as solid as uh, as before. 
but maybe I'm only exaggerating. I sh I, th I think if I, maybe it's just lack of discipline. <laughs> if I sit down and uh, every day three hours, maybe the rest will be automatic. I hope. There's a book out in Swedish just recently, a couple of months ago, uh, that consists of essays and columns that Asli wrote uh, in a pro-Kurdish newspaper. And I think one, some of these columns were some of the reason for why you got arrested as well. Yes, in yes. fact, in one of the, no, in more than one, I, I had many references to Auschwitz. And uh, it's very rare in Turkish uh, oh. columnist work to have references to Holocaust and Auschwitz. Uh, in fact, I have a story about Mala Zimmerbaum, which Pirmo Levi also mm. mentions. Mm. And uh, yeah, many, uh, it's, uh, uh, many of the also writers who survived uh, Auschwitz, uh, I have references in that book. But that's not what put me into trouble, of course. Uh, no. It is, I think, I never know what they got so angry at, but I have two articles or stories uh, based on a technique I learned from Heimrat Becker, which he dedicated a lifetime to write the poetry of Holocaust. And he said it's enough to quote from legal documents. And the first time I read his poetry, I, it didn't strike me, but second time it killed me. And I worked with this technique. First I, I wrote uh, on a, an accident where 300 uh, miners were killed, were, were dead, and the audience, the readers said, oh, your article made me cry, made me cry. And I realized actually this is sometimes very powerful, just mm. to quote. And I did this for Jizre. I, I wrote a, an article named This is Your Father. And I quoted from autopsy reports, from letters, from the phone calls of the victims. 150 people were burned alive in the cellars. And I finished that story by... This, these are real quotations, nothing is fictionary. Um, and you don't know who's saying what. This is the trick. That is all quotations. You hear voices, but to whom they belong to, you have to guess. And I guess it's a young uh, girl speaking, and she says, they gave me a bag, a plastic bag of about five or seven kilos, full of ashes and bones, and they said, this is your father. Mm. So I ended that uh, <laughs> quotation with that. I think this is what put me to jail. Yeah. But they have nothing to accuse me. It's not uh, fiction. It is none of it is my own words. It's quotations, and they know that they can't charge me on that yeah. article. And those are very powerful texts in this volume that is uh, been published in Sweden recently and is available. And I would recommend really that you take part of this. Uh, there's also a book uh, by you out in recently translated into English. It's called A Stone Building, and this is more like short stories, narratives of suffering, trauma, and isolation. Um, it's not really, not really easy to say that, that you can spot Turkey here, but I have, Ian, I know that you have read this book in English. Could you describe it for, for, for the audience? It's better that you do it than, than that I do it. 
Well, it's a fascinating reading experience, um, perhaps especially so for an English reader because it uh, combines um, rather uh, strangely, weirdly, uh, both um, all the direct uh, thing-related uh, prose you associate with realism, but also a kind of dreaminess that I would associate with Marquez. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there's a story in the collection about a group of women who leave a, a tuberculosis ward, a TB hospital, and um, push on through a forest. And the forest is described with, I think, um, you have a science background. I mean, it's beautifully done. <laughs> the women, uh, or most of them, don't quite know where they're going. The, the, the central character has no idea uh, why they're pushing forward or why when they get to the most beautiful place they then have to descend a gorge. The reader knows nothing except for sweat and struggle and fierce kind of desire to push onwards against time. You don't know what this time is. And then when they get to the bottom of the gorge amongst colossal stones, the women then strike these poses, erotic poses, various kinds. And then some men come by in a canoe. And that's the end. And you are in this dream state of uh, knowing you've read something both significant and just beyond the reach. So this is not like um, as if you were to write a direct challenge to to some authority. And yet at the same time, there is a curious state of oppression, of illness which is not just physical, of an extraordinary kind of erotic power. So I have to say that... um, I was completely swept away by this this story. I felt sort of exhausted, <laughs> as if I too had traversed this most difficult, prickly, dark forest, um, which offers both liberation and oppression in equal measure. Um, a marvelous story. The stone building itself seems to function both as a prison, a hospital, a city, an oppression, uh, an oppressive state. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, um, hovering somewhere in the world of Kafka, somewhere in the world of Marquez, but with a specificity that I think uh, is, is really striking. I will faint now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so, so much an honor to hear all this from you. I, I will uh, tell for you, though, those of you in the back here, that Asli, you look very, very, very pleased and very happy when <laughs> all he <red>. described this. <laughs> Perhaps also um, uh, some memories of the the time before the situation in Turkey that you have just described for us, that you were able to write this freely, that you were able to write fiction. Is that the case? Actually, when I had had written that book in 2010, I had never been to prison myself. I, and I, I'm not a, never to a tuberculosis ward, but it's actually based on a true story mm. uh, that uh, tuberculosis patients. Uh, but I had worked as a columnist in the late 90s, and I, I am one of the ones who brought this theme of torture to mass media, let's say, although I worked for a leftist and intellectual paper, still mass media, and... And that time I read uh, a lot of letters from prisons, a lot of uh, 
testimonies on torture, and s most of them were handwritten. Mm. And uh, also, my family has a political background, and uh, in the beginning of 90s, I lived with uh, African immigrants in Turkey, which uh, I experienced another kind of violence, uh, very, very uh, brutal, in fact, um, in a political prisoner, I must say, is better treated always than someone who is at the lowest level of the society, the poorest, and uh, who is unable to defend uh, himself or herself. Uh, I, some of the things I have experienced, I wouldn't have believed if someone told me that this Turkey could be so violent and so racist and no. so brutal. And in fact, the stone building is uh, written in memoriam of, uh, of someone I dearly loved. Uh, I loved very much, and he was uh, missing for a long time. And then I got uh, death news, unconfirmed. So maybe that I wanted to build a beautiful tombstone for him. So the torture experience I know vaguely. Um, and I was criticized for that in Turkey. Many readers have the experience of torture in Turkey. And they said, this is too poetic language for such a brutal reality. But when I went myself to jail and to cell, and uh, uh, I thought, no, the way the trauma speaks, at least in me, is like that. It, mm. it really perfectly made fiction is not the language of trauma. I don't remember prison as uh, with full details and it's more like some images that you can't r get rid of. They are very strong, black and white, almost like stone, and a big cloud surrounding them. So I thought maybe I was right in catching the language of the trauma. Trauma is, doesn't speak to you realistically. <laughs> it's always a dreamlike quality, but you just can't get out of it. It's suffocating. And I, I tried to catch that language uh, um, in most of my writing, this kind of uh, almost claustrophobic uh, and corporal in a way. Yeah. And because my traumas talk like that to me, through my body. Uh. It's, Ian, you need no further introduction, I, I, I think, for the Swedish readers. You are quite well known, as, as Ingmar pointed out. We, we spent a spread when your novel Saturday was translated. I never Swedish. knew about the spread. No. I actually <laughs> forgot it as well, but... Yeah. I it was an idea, but it was also an idea mm -hmm. that your a, a new novel by you is almost always received with great interest and with great joy here among Swedish readers, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, your, your, your newest novel in Swedish is no exception to that. And speaking about claustrophobia, this is another kind of claustrophobic situation that is described here. It is a, a situation where the narrator is no less than an unborn fetus in the womb of a woman. And could you explain to us how, how this idea came into your mind? <laughs> if only I knew. Well, <laughs> uh, 
I've been so wed to the realist novel for so long, and I wanted to get back to where I was when I was 23 and 24, and still very much uh, in awe of the writing of Kafka. Uh, one afternoon I was sitting talking to my, uh, my daughter-in-law, who was very pregnant, um, and her stomach was it seemed enormous. And, um, and we were talking about the baby, and she's a mathematician, she works uh, very hard for a, a, the British Antarctic Survey. Uh, she was leaving all that behind to have six months maternity leave. And all the time I kept thinking, there's a presence in this room that we're talking about, and what if he or she were listening? And I made a note about that, and then I was writing a lecture on the self, uh, on identity, the invention of the self, and I mostly discussed the essays of Montaigne and um, a little bit of um, uh, Boswell and Pepys, and uh, inevitably I came to Shakespeare, and then through Shakespeare inevitably to Hamlet, because this seemed to me the most fully realized self um, that we have in in the in the anglophone world, and somehow this Hamlet found himself being dragged into the womb, and I thought, what an ideal place this would be for a narrator, a highly educated, aware, um, news-hungry fetus who listens to all his mother's podcasts and is waiting to join the world. Really? Uh, and has a perspective on it. Uh, and at the same time is aware that his mother is having a, a sexual affair with his uncle. Um, Whose name is Claude, by the way. Of course. And yes, and uh, she's called Trudy. Yeah. Um, and I thought this was an opportunity. I mean, all novelists, whenever they have to describe the sexual act, always think this path is so trodden. Do we have trains going into tunnels or explosions? Uh, the ground is littered with cliches that are impossible. But I thought from a fetus's point of view, um, there is an, a new way of looking at this. And so the fetus's main worry is that his uncle's penis will come and... Uh, and his uncle is a very dull man. Uh, it's a fatal combination in a man to be extremely boring and very sexually potent. Um, <laughs> And so his main worry is that his uncle's penis will uh, penetrate his very soft skull and that he will ejaculate into his brain and that he will become a very boring person yes. too. So um, Samuel Johnson uh, mentioned, uh, Samuel Johnson was right about so many things. He said, uh, it's almost like a Latin tag. He said, writing strange, writes short. If you have a very, very strange novel, you better keep it short. Um, uh, so that's why this novel is uh, only, you know, it's uh, 160 pages or so. Probably 170 in Swedish, I don't know. Uh, and it was a holiday for me, really. Uh, I kept thinking, I'm going to get into such trouble with this, I don't care. I'm almost 70, I can do what I want, um, and I probably would never get away with it. And for some readers, I didn't. I mean, mm. 
uh, readers are very frank these days in signing cues, and they tell you what they like and what they don't like. Mm. Is that refreshing or not? I don't know. Uh, sometimes one's amour proper is a little dented, but it's mm, mm, okay. But this this reference to Hamlet that is it's it's more or less based on Hamlet, you yes. could say. But yeah. do they, do British readers nowadays do they um, recognize this this connection? Is it important? Uh, yes, I think so. Well, literate readers do. Um, yes, I think everyone's heard of Hamlet. I mean, it's also the name of a cigar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So they've heard of that. Uh, I think most people know the plot of Hamlet, uh, or could give you a rough account. A bit of Macbeth is in there too, uh, and other uh, late Shakespeare plays uh, are, are in there. Winter's Tale. And I tried to write my first idea, and I never quite abandoned it, and it was a ludicrous piece of uh, folly, was to write a novel, as it were, that the fetus is Shakespeare, about to be born again. And so I tried to write his sentences in iambic pentameters. Nobody noticed, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, and in, uh, in a kind of rhythmic prose that would take something of the um, feel of a, of a poet being reborn. That, that was the idea. That got a little lost along the way. Um, it's very hard to like, write like Shakespeare, I find. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um. I heard you, I met you in Gothenburg as yes, well, but yeah. not, although a couple of years ago, not just a couple of months ago, but I he heard you in 2015, 15. when you held a very passionate speech on the importance of freedom of speech. And this was, uh, mind you, in 2015, it might not sound so long ago, it's just, what is it, two and a half years yeah, ago, pre but yeah. a lot has happened since. Mm that has changed the conditions, I think it's fair to say, for the world that we live in. And you said, as Ingmar pointed out earlier here, that it's worth remembering this, that freedom of expression sustains all the other freedoms we enjoy. Without free speech, democracy is a sham. And do you remember the speech, this occasion, and, and if so, do you still agree with what you said? There? Yes, I'd, I'd go a little further than a sham. I, I mean, I don't think it's even conceivable. In other words, um, every freedom that we do have, and, we, and I think it's very important to remember, you know, unlike Asley's situation, there are very important freedoms that we retain, and we shouldn't flatter or dramatize ourselves by thinking that our situation is remotely comparable. Um, Every freedom we do have, someone had to think it and write it down. Uh, whether we're thinking of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or the writing of Tom Paine or Jefferson, uh, or the founding fathers of, 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 of the uh, French Enlightenment, uh, or Milton in his Areopagitica, all of these things had to be written before they could be generally understood and practiced into the culture. So, uh, in a sense, that's why I conceive of the freedom of speech as, as a, the sine qua non of all other freedoms, of association, of trade union rights, of uh, uh, assembly and everything else. They all had to be conceived, they had to be written, they had to be broadcast. Mm. 
uh, in whatever was the technology of the time. So without, without them, it's not conceivable. That, that, that was my point. More than a sham, I, I'd, I'd go further. But what has happened since uh, this autumn in 2015 is, among other things, we've had Brexit in your native mm -hmm. country, in Great Britain. We've mm -hmm. had Trump. We've had a situation that you have been going through, Asli, in Turkey, where an authoritarian regime, even for each day that goes, even is turning this country basically into a prison for, for writers and journalists. Has this sharpened, like, the analysis that you made then? What, what I think that we are in the most extraordinary time. It's very hard to imagine what collective future we're going to make for, for ourselves out mm -hmm. of this. I mean, the surge in right-wing populism um, across some of the most privileged areas of the world in terms of free speech has been very, very alarming. The internet has played a, a very large part in this blurring of truth and, and non-truth. Uh, the internet, as I see it, is simply a massive reflection of human nature. Uh, so we, we see all the best and we see all the worst. Just to dwell for the moment on the best, I think that we are living through quite a golden age of long-form journalism on the internet. I mean, I waste a lot of time every day reading essays that I never would have got to um, without the internet. And I have access to maybe a hundred newspapers, as, as, um, some of them, of course, are publishing long-form journalism. And at the same time, we have the whole fake news, um, what we call it, a carnival of, of, of distortion in uh, the Trump White House in the, uh, and spreading out through Breitbart and, and on all the uh, organs of right-wing populism. Uh, on the edges of Europe, we have a kind of nibbling away at the constitutional freedoms that have caused some serious rifts between Poland, Hungary and Brussels, uh, and, and we watched that with alarm. And you see how easily things could begin to crumble. Mm. Uh, and one comes back to that often repeated remark that um, for evil to flourish, all it requires is for good people to do nothing. Um, Interesting too, just as in the old Soviet Union and its satellite countries, um, where novelists, poets and journalists had an extraordinary kind of importance uh, in, in a kind of inverse relationship to their freedom. Uh, we see it now in Turkey that writers and journalists and poets are the, are the ones that the state needs to crush first. Um, mm. It's very alarming, but it reminds us again how important the free word is. Is that fair to say the description that I made, Asli, about Turkey, for instance, that it's turning into more or less of a, of a castle, of a prison? For yeah, I would call it rather a concentration camp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, when a regime starts to become authoritarian, of course, the first target is always journalists. But it doesn't stop there. Then comes the turn of the writer, the artist, the academician, when they want to establish more and more control of the truth. And then even a writer like me becomes a threat or a nuisance 
why do I call it a concentration camp uh, on one basis that uh, people were put onto concentration camps starting from 1933 without judgment, without seeing a judge. An SS or SA could make the decision. I think the situation is similar in Turkey now. There is really no judgment. There is no, the judicial system has completely been under the control of the political power. And I, I say it myself, you see a judge who doesn't listen to you, it's written there that if you'll be arrested, you'll be sentenced what, so by one phone call. And this is what makes Turkey a concentration camp. It doesn't have to be Auschwitz, not yet, and probably not, but it started like that. And when the Second World War started, there were 40,000 people arrested uh, in the concentration camps of Germany. Now there is over 100,000 mm. arrested in one year. These are huge numbers. And these people don't know how long they will stay. Most of them don't even know why they are there. Mm. Uh, and so it's uh, really an alarming situation. And it's, a, I think, a story that has repeated itself so many times and uh, it, the dictators always want a war and the enemy but one is not enough then another one and each time they are successful and uh, I don't understand how 1930s more or less is coming back. Haven't we learned anything from Auschwitz? Mm. Is it an extraordinary thing actually that a totalitarian state needs to convince itself still with due process. You know, it has to go through, as in the show trials, this facade of legality, uh, as if to whip itself up into some dream state that it's legal. I mean, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the KGB's archives were available, for, there was a brief period of time uh, and one was able to read uh, the transcripts of um, the interviews, the interrogations, mm -hmm. and then the trials. The necessity of generating this fiction, they could have just summarily uh, shot everyone they wanted to. They had no, nothing stood in their way. But yes, this fiction of the trial, yeah, and, the and trauma, they the need the, I mean, some sort of legitimization, maybe, yeah. or maybe it's a uh, power game. They want to, you know, the, I would like to mention one writer who is still in jail, Ahmed Altan. He was one of our most famous novelists when I was, uh, I had just written my first novel. He was one of the gods, like uh, Orhan Pamuk and him were. Uh, now he's in jail and he was arrested on something you would call Kafkaesque, if it's not an insult to Kafka, for giving subliminal messages on right. television mm. before uh, the coup attempt. One night before he was coincidentally on TV. But they didn't stop there. They didn't release him after a year. Now the prosecutor asked life sentence. So this drama, this really it's a theater, everybody made jokes about this subliminal blah blah mm. blah thing. Yeah, yeah. But now it's becoming a real tragedy. And why do they need this is a question also yeah. I ask myself. I mean, they have scared people enough anyway. Yeah. Why don't you let this guy out? No. 
I think it was Milan Kundera who said the totalitarian state will drive itself to a frenzy if there's just one dissenting voice left. <laughs> Probably. Um, <laughs> Even half. <laughs> because it's a paranoid state, the totalitarian yeah. state. Yeah, it needs more and more enemies. And, yeah. it's, uh, and just as in Orwell's 1984, you have this Trotsky-like figure that everyone can hate. So I guess in Turkey you have Gulen across yeah, the sea. And the witch burning. He, he is and there's the PKK also. Yes. We have you, yes. I mean, you have to explain, this is, this is Turkey. This is, this is a country just, just six, seven years ago, I remember when Pamuk was awarded a Nobel Prize, there was a reception at the Turkish, Turkish embassy here in Stockholm. Everyone was cheerful. Democracy was growing in Turkey. Turkey was about to enter the EU. Uh, there was, there was, it was moving forward, and, and now this this is just a couple of years ago, and now it's changed to this totally, like you described, Kafkaesque, bizarre situation. And it's still a member of NATO. Yeah, us actually, yeah. but how how can it how how can it go so fast? Well, the f actually, I I supported most of policies of Erdogan in his first four mm -hmm. years, uh, although I never voted for AKP myself. I was not, uh, you know, allergic to them. I thought they were really making some steps in terms of democratization of Turkey. And in, I, but there were some signals. First, in 2007, the murder, the assassination of Hrantink. Yes. I think we should have taken it more seriously. It was organized by the state. And a Ar Turkish-Armenian editor editor-in-chief, that was very yeah. important. Yeah, Hrantink, yeah. yeah, and he was a, a soft figure, like yes. me, a pigeon. <laughs> Why was he assassinated in the middle of the streets of Istanbul? And he was a friend of mine also. And then in 2008, again, I wrote about it, and nobody believed me, this uh, Cassandra co complex, I call <laughs> nobody <laughs> believes when I try to. In 2008, there was a change in the anti-terror law. Most of it was made Europe compatible, but there was one little thing there, which said, if anybody defends the ideas of a terrorist organization, he or she will can be charged as if he's a member of a terrorist organization. This was actually their first attack was on freedom of thought. So I, I defend that Kurds can have, should have uh, the right to be educated in their own language, let's say, native language. So PKK defends the same. So they might charge me, you are defending what PKK is defending. This is so dangerous, mm -hmm. so big. And, and I pointed it out. In fact, in, in, it was in a European uh, meeting like that, and one European parliamentary shouted at me, you are lying. At that time, only one person was arrested because of that uh, new article. And she was freed in eight years, and by that time there were 10,000 people arrested from that article. So, we saw. We saw what's coming, we tried to warn, but you know, nobody listens to you, especially politicians, female writer coming from Turkey. I was like Esmeralda in the Inquisition trial. It was a priest. <laughs> Who would believe you? No, the Europe didn't buy that, didn't want that picture. Actually, it wasn't coming. But weren't slowly. there protests in Turkey among your, your colleagues, your intellectual colleagues? And 
That was five years later in 2013. Of course, things were getting faster and faster. Yes. In 2013, there was a big revolt, the Gezi uprising, but yes. which was crushed. I also took part in that actively. I still have the burn marks very much with a brutality, police brutality, in unbelievable police brutality, uh, much more than you have seen in your, on your televisions. They were, they defeated millions of people. And I think now it's more or less impossible even to dream of a few hundred people coming together in the street. Uh, the police uh, is uh, omnipotent in Turkey at the moment. So it started with small, small changes in, in law, in law texts and in... in I, as far as I can judge yeah, yet, that yeah. the, but probably they were not, you know, I don't believe they had a definite plan. The things, the war in Syria, the Gulen, their, the break between the Gulen sect and the, things accelerated, uh, just went out of uh, control, I think, at one point. And the, and uh, of course, the coup attempt was uh, changed things drastically. Uh, I mean, it really became a paranoid state. Uh, and yeah, Ian, you, I mean, you, you, you live in a country that 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 is in the EU still. Just about. That, yes. Yeah, just about. <clears throat> that doesn't want to be in the EU, or part part of the country doesn't want to be. Uh, do you feel, I mean, it's very difficult, ob obviously, to draw comparisons between Turkey and, mm -hmm. and Great Britain, but you have written extensively a, a very sharp article in The Guardian this summer about your feelings, about the, the, <coughs> the very, um, your uneasiness about the changes of mind that's taking place in Great Britain. Do you, how well, do you I think the country uh, has been lied to systematically um, by uh, by an elite group of mostly male politicians uh, who uh, themselves pretend to be against elites, but are themselves you know newspaper proprietors, um, old Etonians, uh, members of parliament, and plutocratic businessmen, and have uh, over the years. I mean, this has gone on for a long time. The the tabloid campaign against Europe. Uh, has really been going since the last referendum uh, in the mid-70s. And uh, I think that many people became persuaded that their economic position would be much improved if we left the European Union. It's, I think we may be at a turning point. Um, a poll was published today, in fact, um, showing that uh, there's a 16-point lead among people who would prefer a second ref referendum. Nobody knew, if you say, should we be in the EU or not, yes or no, uh, it really covers a vast uh, set of details. Do we want to be in the single market? Should we be in the customs union? What about people from Europe, uh, the million uh, British people living in Europe, the three million from the EU uh, living in Britain? and a thousand other small things, including the Irish border, which is a very complex matter. All of this was, uh, it was raised in the campaign, but the Brexitists called us the architects of Project Fear. Um, 
if we do go ahead with this, and at the moment it's, you know, that's what's on our schedule, we, we will leave in next March. Uh, and um, I feel that beyond the economics, there is a much broader matter, which I, I mean, I personally think that the EU has been one of the most extraordinary, heroic uh, political achievements for all its faults and democratic deficiencies and vast bureaucracy and its terrible common agricultural policy, uh, which is, has been environmentally destructive, as has its fisheries. There's plenty wrong with it, but it's all reformable. Um, for that, all the same, it has overseen a period of unprecedented in human history, in, in European history of peace and general prosperity. Uh, it's certainly not perfect. Um, but uh, truth really went out the window uh, in this campaign. And uh, uh, I'm afraid we really have let ourselves be run by very, very ideologically motivated people. And there's a parallel, too, with, with, with what's happened in the United States. There is certainly a core of a problem that we haven't really managed to address, which is how you have globalization and companies can you know, move uh, their factories where the labor is cheaper without creating huge uh, dissatisfaction and unemployment in, in the countries left behind. And the EU itself has generated such problems for us. If they identify uh, an underdeveloped part of Poland, uh, so a chocolate factory leaves England, leaves behind 500 people unemployed and with huge grants and tax breaks, um, Cadbury's or whatever can set up a factory in Poland. It leaves a very bitter taste in, in the mouths of those who suddenly find themselves without work. And we've yet to square that, um, how capital moves, how uh, globalization has created, um, there's no good denying it, some real misery. In, in highly developed countries. Uh, we need to address that. One, one common thing, uh, at least between the, the rhetoric of the, the, the Brexiteers and the, the Erdogan regime is nationalism, of course. What, 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 what part would you say, Asli, that nationalism has had in, in the de-democratization of Turkey? Uh, with respect to Turkey, it's a very complicated question. I think it is in the very roots of the Turkish Republic. Mm -hmm. That's nationalism. I mean, the Turkish Republic, so when it was founded, a Turkish nation had to be created from the remains of an Ottoman Empire. And uh, I'm not ethnically Turkish, and there were millions like that. No. Uh, so we had to create a nation, and that usually happens at the expense of some groups, mainly Kurds or the Christian groups, Armenians and Greeks. And those. So that was uh, so many lives, so many tragedies had to were lived to create a nation, which actually semi-fictional, but worked. But of course, underneath, there were the fault lines. And one big fault line was between nationalism and Islamic view, which uh, has this idea of ummet, that anybody who belongs to this religion is us, not the other. 
And uh, in Gezi uprising, for example, uh, there were so many Turkish flags. Uh, there were all groups there. There was an ecologic, ecologic movement, there was the Kurds were there, and sometimes hand-in-hand hand a Kurdish flag and a Turkish flag, but the Turkish flag was there, very prominent. And I was thinking, again, nobody <laughs> was listening to me, but he will, if he's clever, and he is, he will take, take that flag off your hands and will carry it himself. And within a few months, the first AKP meeting, they all had Turkish flags. Mm. And this is a very powerful symbol in Turkey. If anybody waves the flag, the whole country <laughs> runs after without caring. And now I can see, for example, in this last war, uh, I'm reading the Turkish papers, so much reference to Islam. God be, Allah be with our army. This never happened in, let's say, 1974. I remember the war declared upon Cyprus. God be with us. This is, so I think he's very cleverly bringing the religious rhetoric together with the nationalist rhetoric, which are both very strong in Turkey. Now, so I think he learned not to take this big wave from the front, but sideways. Mm -hmm. So the Turkish nationalism is actually making him much faster towards his, uh, his throne. Mm -hmm. And it breaks also the opposition. You know, the opposition in Gezi was a miracle that the Kurdish uh, colored man was hand in hand dancing with the guy, man with Turkish flag. I saw with my own eyes. Now it is broken. I mean, uh, the word Kurd uh, has uh, produced strong allergies in uh, those who are equally hating Erdogan. But how can these two groups come together now? Especially, Turkish army has moved against. Uh, PYD in uh, Afrin. I mean, uh, so the nation has to be following Erdogan with the word God be with our army. And I, I really find it a very dangerous mix. And if you say anything, if even ask a question, why are we entering Syria? You are immediately taken as a traitor plus almost offending God, <laughs> because yeah. God is now with, with the Turkish army. So, Do you recognize any of this from the, the well, I'd things happening? Well, I recognize an old Bob Dylan song, um, with God on our side. Um, yes, and we see it with the evangelical movement being so fiercely with Trump, who is himself not a particularly religious man, but uh, I think it's a very potent mix. Um, religion and, and nationalism. But we, I mean, fortunately we haven't had that in, in Britain so much. Certainly the nationalism. Uh, in, the, in the weeks after the referendum, we had many, many hate crimes in the street. People, ordinary Polish, uh, Hungarian citizens being beaten up uh, in a small village quite close to where I live uh, in Gloucestershire. Um, a young Pole was beaten up, and the man who came to his rescue was a, a, a British of, of um, Pakistani origin, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was extraordinary. 
Matter, who himself was then severely uh, injured. And in that clash, uh, these were three or four drunken white youths uh, all ran off, no one was arrested. But in that clash, you see an extraordinary history. Uh, uh, a Pakistani defending a pole against um, English nationalism. Worth remembering that Scotland did not vote to leave the Union. Um, and we could be seeing the splintering in a um, Catalonian fashion mm. uh, of, uh, of Great Britain itself. I think it will take years to, to unravel. But it was largely rural, non-London England that carried the day. So in other words, the areas that have the fewest immigrants, the fewest uh, European workers. Uh, so that distrust of, distrust of the other um, is, is very, very potent when you don't know any other. You know. So in London, where you know, I think we have a f pretty successful racial mix, uh, it voted overwhelmingly to remain. Mm -hmm. um, there was always talk, every now and then someone says in a half-joking way that London should uh, succeed from England and join the European Union again. Uh, but you know, that's, um, that's just in a land of fantasy. But the God on our side notion, or the chosen people, or whatever, it was also a very, very dangerous notion that you are somehow elevated above either common morality or legality simply by a supernatural en entity um, willing you forward is uh, a disastrous notion. You have also said, Ian, at one point that free speech is not religion's enemy, it is its protector. Yes, and I still think that uh, absolutely the only the only state I think in which religion can freely flourish is the secular state. Um, we've seen it through history that the the Catholic domination of Europe did not uh, much tolerate uh, Protestantism, and Protestants, when they were in control, uh, set about the Catholics. Um, there is a genuine problem of freedom of expression in most Muslim-majority countries. Um, Saudi Arabia does not permit the Bible in its territory, and it's certainly not a church. So the secular state that believes in none of it uh, is able to tolerate all of it. Um, one can take the view that, I mean, religions have uh, all blaspheme in each other's religion, um, quite clearly. Uh, is Jesus the son of God? Yes, if you're a Christian, most certainly not if you're a Muslim. Um, is Muhammad God's last messenger? Certainly not if you're a Christian. Um, only the secular state, I think, can guarantee the, the level of tolerance that will let religions flourish side by side, which is what we want. The irony, of course, is that that was the founding notion of the United States, a vast supermarket of religions. Um, somehow it's gone, gone wrong. I mean, uh, uh, to get away from the religious absolutism of Europe, uh, everything flourished, and indeed it has flourished mightily. Um, so yes, um, I, I've been very interested in the, I mean, I wrote a novel about the clash of secularism 
and sincerely held religious faith uh, in, in a book called the, the Children Act. Um, it remains, I mean, I was bitterly opposed to Tony Blair's movement to make it um, a criminal offense to uh, be overly critical of religion. Um, hopeless in a country like Britain, which is overwhelmingly now secular. I mean, whatever else anybody says, the Archbishop of Canterbury or whatever, most people do not go to church. Religions are thought systems like any other, um, and they should be available to, to be criticized. Um, and I found myself in a press conference with um, the actor who is Mr. Bean, our most famous um, yeah. fool, and um, the ex-Attorney General and I think one of the heroes of the of the Conservative Party, Dominic Grieve, and the three of us making the case against uh, a religious bill that would place religion somewhat apart from, from any other thought system and make it uh, impossible to, to discuss freely and openly. Um, and nothing came of it. I mean, it can't survive such a notion in a secular society. But I think we have to remain ever vigilant. Um, we abolished our own laws of blasphemy um, in, in reasonable response to, uh, to Islamic scholars living in Britain saying, well, why should Christianity be protected by laws of blasphemy? We want it too. So instead of saying you can have it too, we say, well, I'll tell you what, we'll give ours up. Mm. Um, it's been a long time since anyone was punished for blasphemy in the Christian church in Britain. But there was a famous case in Scotland in the late 17th century. Um, a man called Aikenhead, 22-year-old, and I think had he lived would have been a genius. Mm. Um, a, a superb master of English prose, um, but um, was hanged outside Edinburgh. But yes, that's long in our past and we don't want it back. But you, you, you have the situation in Turkey, a secular state from the beginning that has now turning into a yeah, yeah. Authoritarian religious and, uh, regime. Uh, more almost. and more references to Islam yes. and religion, uh, but it is still uh, on paper uh, the only dem secular Muslim state. But uh, I think it's been more and more undermined the secularism. And uh, in so many debates, for example, I don't know what to answer when they say. No, this is against the Quran. That's it. They have the absolute truth. Mm -hmm. Let's say uh, uh, on homosexuality, and they said, "Okay, this is what Quran says." And I find myself powerless to answer. Yes, uh, that is what Quran says. I, I, I don't criticize it, but uh, do I have to believe in that? Uh, <laughs> I mean, some people believe the world is flat, some others don't, we can argue, but I try to prove, maybe you t try to tell me that proving is not the way to approach it. We can keep on arguing, but if they give you an, they gave you an absolute reference, that's dot. Mm. Quran is against homosexuality. End of discussion. End of discussion, yeah, I, yeah. I mean... Uh, 
Listen, I have a question for both of you. Uh, it's it, perhaps a, a silly question and perhaps a difficult question, but, but let's try. You are two writers, two authors of fiction, mainly. You live in, have been living under different, very different conditions. And you have been living in now for the last time in, 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 a, in a free country where there are no authoritarian regime trying to put you in jail for the novels that you write or for the columns that you occasionally write in The Guardian. But you, Asli, you have been living in a different, in a different state. And you have said once that, that, that you hate politics and that you, you thought at one time that you finally had found calm to be able to write novels again. Mm -hmm. So if you, if, you could, if you could swap conditions, so let's try that you, ha you have been living in, in Great Britain. What kind of books would you have, have written then? <laughs> oh, who knows? <laughs> Shakespeare. <laughs> I would be. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I think uh, I sometimes feel that uh, chaos is... Uh, it's good for art. You you need to have some some traumas. Otherwise, if you were completely happy, why should you bother with uh, you know writing? But sometimes I feel, with respect to my own life, it's too much. I mean, I could have written. I don't know how they would be, but at least two or three more novels with the energy I spent mm -hmm. on on columns. Uh, I wish sometimes I had the luxury to go my, to my room, put on my uh, Mozart or Bach and just do not see all the bloodshed. But then who has that luxury? If I were living in Britain, would I have that? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. And I sometimes I think uh, it's perhaps easier to see the oppression in a state, in a country like mine. There, it's more uh, subtle. <laughs> like, let's give a so solid example: the war between men and women. Let's say, if you are grown up in Turkey, you you see this, the violence so clearly. It's so easy; you can't miss it. If I was a French woman, I would have to spend more time <laughs> trying to analyze why is it happening to me now. Ah, oh, it's because I'm a woman. It would take a longer way, I would say. Uh, so it's uh, it's a mix uh, mix of uh, I no one can know what will uh, what trauma you will be turning into art how much of it you can and uh, so uh, you think your basic theme would still be there you mentioned the word trauma here and for instance. Well, I don't know how what I would be if I was born in France. Probably I would, uh, or in Great Britain. I can't imagine. I never tried to, to imagine that. And, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I have never seen an example of a life without misery. So if, maybe it's in my eyes. Maybe I don't see it. Maybe some nerves were blinded because of my past. But maybe it's not really out there. This, this I can't know, honestly. Uh, I, but I see the trauma and the misery. And I, even in my first novel, it's about a one-eyed woman. I confessed. I see 
only the dark side of the reality. Don't expect me to tell you the full, full version. And uh, maybe, yes, if I was born perhaps in Great Britain, I would have a broader version of uh, reality, perhaps. Mm. But maybe it would take me a bit longer to look at into the darker corners that uh, I wouldn't be perhaps so willing to look at. What about you? You got some time to think here about this, this question. So. I had no time to think because I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I would hope I would aspire to at least a half of Asley's courage. Um, mm. um, and let's note also that here is a, a Turkish writer who's, who speaks incredibly fluent English. I speak no Turkish. Uh, so it's already not a level playing field. I think that um, my idea of a free state in which uh, the free word exists is that any given individual writer can turn his or her back on politics if they wish. It's a great luxury to not have to write about politics if you are not that way inclined. And therefore... It's the sum of a literary culture that matters than rather than what any single writer does. So in a free state, it should be possible to spend your whole life writing about chess or the relationship between men and women or uh, golf. Um, you don't have that luxury when the state is breathing down your neck mm -hmm. and is uh, punishing you for your aspirations for freedom. Uh, so uh, if I'd... Uh, been in solitary confinement in the way that Asley has, uh, and yet she's still clearly a, a combative spirit and a superb writer. Uh, at the end of it all, if I could achieve one slice of that, I would be very proud of myself. Mm. That's very beautifully said, I think. <laughs> When, when, we, when we met Asli uh, in Gothenburg, I, I, I put a question to you as, as to finish. Uh, and I think it goes for our discussion here as well about freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom. freedom. Um, and I, the question was uh, to you after having living, lived in Turkey for, for some years and seen what has happened there in the D democratization process, can it happen here? Should we be sure about ourselves that, that the same thing can't happen here in Sweden or for that sake in, in Great Britain? Well, I, I can't be the judge, of course, or I can't see the future, but uh, I, would, I have, as an outsider, much more trust in, uh, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, in European institutions, in European intellectuals, and uh, that those concepts are not built in one day, the freedom of speech, democracy. They have centuries of blood and toil, uh, intellectual fight, political fight, and, um, and, and I don't think Europe will just throw them away just like that. Uh, I mean, uh, you go to Rome and there are tourists in, the, in, the, in this uh, plaza, but there Bruno was burnt mm. 
only a few hundred years ago, not a long time ago, but his statue is there. Just a few hundred years ago, people could be burned uh, in places we have cafes to the cafes today. So I don't think Europe is uh, that spoiled. Mm-hmm. Maybe the newer generations, for them, they everything came on a golden plate because of EU. That they have forgotten that people had to fight for eight-hour workday, for this, for women's right to vote. For them, it's an old, boring story. Mm. But surely, I think if uh, things get a bit tougher, and it gets tougher, Mm. and when the nationalistic, maybe this right-wing tide that's sweeping (laughs) over the world will teach us again to look at these uh, basic notions. Mm. What do we mean by freedom of thought? I mean, we intellectuals too, sometimes we use words, we juggle with them, but we don't really know <laughs> what they are, and it takes a lifetime. Even a lifetime is not enough sometimes uh, to learn the meaning of that word. And maybe, uh, so I have uh, more confidence that uh, no, things will not crumble here in Sweden or in, in Great Britain. You have much more, so much more deeply rooted traditions and mm. democracy, uh, I believe that. Uh, and I, I still have hopes for Turkey, even that uh, the democratic forces will, will rise their heads and, uh, eventually. Do you have the same hope in our, the, the, f- the well, solid I foundations of I our freedom? I think put a finger on it. I, th- I think a historical imagination and a, uh, and a grasp of history is, is absolutely vital for free societies. And to, to not take for granted the freedoms that we do have, to remember that they actually were, as you say, um, written in blood and a great deal of struggle. And it's only you know, three or four generations back in my country, women were not allowed to attend university mm. or get a degree or work in the medical profession or a thousand other things. And all of them took an enormous amount of patience and free words uh, to change. But just remember um, that uh, Adolf Hitler was uh, freely elected in a democratic vote, uh, as indeed, um, not to make a direct comparison, but as was Trump, um, that um, that there are uh, neo-fascists in the French parliament, in the, sorry, in the German parliament, mm-hmm. um, that uh, Austria now has an extremely right-wing yes. uh, government, uh, that the constitutions of Hungary and Poland are being uh, altered, especially in relation to the judiciary. So all those things, you know, uh, I think we do have strong institutions. They do have historical depth. But I think, well, if I was the dictator, um, I would say that the core subject in school, maybe before literature, has to be history. Mm. Okay, we, we have decided that we want to end this very fine week here at Internationell Författarscen by, by opening the discussion in a broader sense here as well, by opening the floor to questions from the audience. So it's a bit difficult for me to see, but if someone wants to put a question to either Ian or Asli or both, yes. I, we would be happy if you did. So raise your hand, and Ingmar has I have a, a hand mic yes, here. Yes. And um, please be brief, and please don't um, 
uh, talk so long, and please have a question <laughs> if if you intend to raise your vo voice. That's the end of free speech. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, does does anyone want to want to want to put a question? Do we see anything here? It could be. It doesn't necessarily have to be about freedom of speech either. I think it would be a sad uh, end of this week if we couldn't get a discussion going here with uh, questions from the floor. Ah, that's here, one, uh, here's that's, one that's man. True. Thank Perfect. you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Here's okay. We and, have and one here, and then there's a uh, gentleman here. Please. This on. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to say first, thank you very much to both of you for sharing what you have this evening. That was quite emotional to listen to both of your stories, and I would like to ask within the context of everything discussed this evening, what gives you both hope um, for you know, our, our current sort of global situation and, and also maybe hope in the arts and literature? It's a very good question, I think. Who wants to start? Well, I, uh, I wrote in prison, I don't need hope <laughs> to go on. Well, uh, but that uh, has a hope it's in itself, that sentence. Uh, I think my hope is born out of despair or anger and revolt. Or, or I find it sometimes uh, a, from the desire to vanish. Or, um, but uh, a human being is a very, very strange being. It's uh, res very resilient. <laughs> um, more than the insects. We can survive the nuclear war, I'm sure we will. Um, and uh, one thing that, that prison taught me was um, that uh, um, we are always more resilient when uh, things become very harsh. And there is always solidarity uh, among the losers. The winners, they collaborate, the losers have solidarity. Mm -hmm. And this is a very, very uh, great uh, aspect of the human being, I think, to be able to have solidarity uh, and resilience. And my hope is, uh, is in that, uh, in this uh, simple phrase, human being. Uh, it's very old-fashioned, maybe but I think it belongs to future, actually, that phrase, to its own future. And it's a very strong call, this uh, human being. And it's, there is the hope, I think. I think there's a very good reason not to listen to writers and intellectuals, because uh, Pessimism is our, our plume, our, <laughs> our badge. Uh, you don't hear many intellectuals say <laughs> that the world's in a very good state. But uh, not. And it's not, okay. <laughs> That's, you're an intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> so it's possible. Uh, you, know, you could take a completely different view of the world. You could say in the last 50 years, more people have... We're looking not at Turkey, but we're looking at the planet. More people have come out of poverty. We're living through a golden age of technology and science. Uh, literature and the arts are flourishing. Some extraordinary breakthroughs are, make, are being made in uh, neurodegenerative diseases. 
uh, cooking in England has got way better. Um, has it really? So, yes. Okay. <laughs> it, it couldn't get worse. <laughs> it's getting better. Um, I, my generation lived through a wonderful revolution in rock and roll. Uh, paperback books have been a most extraordinary resource. Um, I think the internet has a curious habit of spreading cultural change so thinly that we, we often might not know what's going on. So, for example, one of the things that terrifies us is that um, artificial intelligence and robotics are going to cause massive unemployment. I mean, this is coming our way. There's no, there's no escape. Maybe 50%. And some of the first people to suffer are not going to be factory workers, or also factory workers, but doctors mm -hmm. and lawyers, uh, white-collar workers. So we might have to redefine the kind of societies we have in terms not of work, but of leisure. This might be an extraordinary breakthrough for human nature. On the other hand, it might be absolutely chaotic and disruptive in, in ways that we can barely imagine. But it's very hard for us sitting down this kind of like a Ouija board where we're moving the, 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 the cup to different letters, spelling out our own future. It's very hard for us to actually discern what, what we're doing. We're writing this future collectively, but we don't know what it is. So my hope is actually that we will scrape through. I don't think we'll blaze through, but I think we might scrape through. I think... I mean, I very much regret being 70 and I won't see the end of this century. I'd love to know the story. Mm. Will we get away with not having a nuclear weapons exchange? I mean, maybe that's the first question. Yeah. At the moment, it's looking right, really bad news. Uh, two days ago, the United States declared its new strategic aims, which is to enter a new arms race with China and Russia. Uh, but... I'm a writer, and I tend to think pessimistically. Yeah, you just proved, you proved that point here. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, yes, I'm not going to say that some good will come of a nuclear exchange. No. Um, I think it will be bad for us all. I think we have one more question, a final question here from the gentleman here okay. on the right. Thank you very much indeed. And I want to, to pick up on actually uh, the end note of you, Mrs. Erdogan which sounded more positive, and I applaud you for ending there, saying that you hope at least that the Turkish people also will start reacting to, and you had uh, some hope that they would uh, start reacting to the uh, anti- or the de-democratization in Turkey right now. I applaud you for expressing and sharing those sentiments, but I would like to know more of your real sentiments as to that possibility. Mm -hmm. Turkish people reacting, coming out more, openly, actively in, in defense of democracy, or the de democracy that they have experienced in Turkey so far. Thank you. Uh, well, at the moment, uh, there is so much. Uh, we are through uh, the state of emergency uh, for uh, almost, uh, I think, more than a year and a half. And uh, the parliament is more or less uh, not working. Uh, uh, I think more than 700 decrees have been passed as laws. And recently the decision of uh, the Court of Constitution was not 
listened to by the uh, regular court. So, which means, in fact, we have lost our constitutional rights as well. Uh, and uh, hundred thousand, uh, yeah, over hundred thousand arrests within a year. Uh, the internet very strictly controlled. People are going to jail for tweets. The situation looks really not so uh, so much. Uh, hope giving, let's say, but uh, but still there is a even under the most difficult circumstances like the elections, uh, the internet was controlled again. Uh, the votes were actually around fifty-fifty, and uh, so that means uh, there is a good fifteen million people who are. Uh, who don't want this kind of regime. Will they be able to organize? Will they be able to step into some political uh, ground? It gets, I'm afraid, more and more difficult with time. Uh, but probably it's not too late. But I think in a few years, especially, they change now the educational system, which gives uh, permission to open only religious high schools in towns smaller than 5,000, which is the majority of Turkey. A new uh, uh, AKP youth is coming, and they are full of desire for revenge, for I don't know for what, but they feel oppressed. Uh, in fact, everyone is oppressed in Turkey, I think, from top to the le uh, bottom. Uh, so, uh, in a few years, it will be more and more difficult to, for the democratic forces, let's say, put it this way, come together. Uh, we will be the minority, but at the moment we are not. Well, I think this teaches us one thing as in, in relevance to what you said also, Ian, about the importance of history that if you if you know history you know that you're also a human being that can take that you're not only you're not only a passive part of history but you can also be an active part of history and i think you have pro proved that point very well here asli and thank you for being here thank you ian and i hope to see you both again here in stockholm very very soon thank you thank you, thank you.